0: During the Lenten season, we're planning to do a series through the book of Habakkuk, uh, one of the small prophets near the end of the Old Testament. Um, And if you think you can find it, you can turn there now, or you can follow along with the text that's printed in your bulletin. Um, We're talking about a similar theme this week as we did last week. Uh, Last week, we looked at uh, the shipwreck of the Apostle Paul, the three shipwrecks of the Apostle Paul, And talked about how difficult it is in a life of faith to deal with uh, Sort of pointless seeming trouble and suffering that comes into our life Uh, Natural disaster, sickness kind of sufferings, things that aren't uh, Somebody else's fault necessarily But still trouble us to wonder why In the world in which God is in control do these kind of things happen? And then um, this week we're going to talk about more the kind of problems that come into our lives because of other people. Uh, what other people deliberately or through indifference do uh, to create real suffering and de- uh, degradation in our lives. And wondering why, in a world where God is in control and people behave so cruelly at times, why doesn't He do anything to stop it? Um, this is the complaint of Habakkuk the prophet. Uh, that he lays out before God, and he's pretty distressed by it. Why won't God stop uh, things that are obviously wrong and destructive when God obviously could do that? And how, if we're going to live in a world where that's all of our experience, are we meant to seriously trust him? Uh, To live in faith and trust in God uh, when we have to watch things that don't make any sense to us, that other people do. So... If there's a title for the sermon, it would be, Why? And as we go through the book of Habakkuk, we'll see that the uh, answers are not what we expect. I think the title for the next sermon in the series is, What? <laughs> so today, Why? And soon, What? Let me pray for us, and then we'll read the scripture. Father, we ask, um, as people whose faith is certainly not as strong as Habakkuk's was, uh, that you would help us. To trust you when we don't understand you. And that you would use your word in our time together this afternoon to deepen the roots of our faith in Jesus Christ. And we ask in his name. Amen. Beginning at verse 1 of Habakkuk 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, and the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So if you were wondering if it's okay to pray honest prayers to God, uh, Habakkuk would say yes. Right. This is very hard for us, dealing with violence in the world and injustice, uh, the harm that we see people do to us and other people. Um, and then we're taught that Christians are supposed to be nonviolent. All right, we're supposed to be nonviolent. Every impulse in us is a vigilante impulse when we see... Real deep cruelty or real deep injustice when we see uh, people who are abusive and bullying uh, to people who have no recourse, you know everything in us kicks in with an instinct of vigilantism of wanting to put a stop to things ourselves, and yet we 're told that we 're not allowed to do that. Uh, most of us at least, and most of the callings that we 're given are not allowed to redress injustices. Um, But we're told to leave it to God, that vengeance is reserved to God himself, and it's not something that he delegates to us. Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, declares the Lord, meaning not you. Vengeance is not yours, and you don't repay. God does. Um, That's the reason we can stand to be nonviolent, right, is that we know God sees, and God has decided to redress things himself, but the problem we have is that he's very slow about doing that and very partial about doing that, and sometimes it seems like he's not doing that at all, and it feels like we need to react with violence ourselves, or certainly we find it hard to trust him when we think he's not he's not holding up his end of this deal. It seems like for us to forego violence means that he needs to be more violent right he needs to be more assertive in his world against. ...what people do to harm each other. It's an analogy I think I've used here before... ...and I expect to use again because I really like it. It's from Basil Mitchell. Oz Guinness mentions this story of a resistance fighter. Um, Picture Vichy France if you need a a specific spot for it. But there's someone who's uh, eager to join the resistance... ...against the occupying oppressive force. And he meets in a pub one night with the resistance leader, the stranger... No one knows his name, but he's the leader of the resistance. And he has this chance to spend an evening with the stranger. Young guys listen to him, and they talk for most of the night. And the resistance leader pours out his heart, his love for his country, his commitment to the resistance, uh, tears over the losses that they've endured, hopes about things that they plan for the future. And comes to the end of the evening, and the stranger says to this young recruit for the resistance, he says, so now I've got to ask you something. Because uh, you're never going to see me again, or we're never going to talk again anyway. You may see me. Uh, But I'm going to need to ask you to trust me as you participate in the resistance. And it's going to be confusing to you, uh, because I'm not going to be able to explain myself to you. And you're going to see me doing things that you don't understand. Sometimes I'll be doing things that obviously seem to help our cause and help you. And other times I'm going to be doing things that look like I'm working against you. Uh, You may see me at times in uh, the uniform of the occupying army and turning someone from the resistance over to them. And other times you'll see me acting to uh, release people. You'll see me acting to obviously help our side. uh, But you're not always going to understand what I'm doing. But you need to trust me because of what you know of me. Uh, That I'm acting in your best interest and in the best interest of our cause. You have to trust me. Now, that's not a perfect analogy for the life of faith that we have, but it's similar to what we deal with. We are called on to trust God when we don't understand what He's doing very often, and sometimes when it seems like what He's doing is counter to what we need Him to do or expect Him to do. And Habakkuk is feeling that, right? This this prayer, he's saying, "Um, "What are you doing? What are you thinking?" How can you make me see this? How can you look at this and not do anything? It's a lament. You're silent in the face of injustice. You're silent in the face of violence. And you're silent in the face of moral perversions that really hurt people. And you seem to just let them go on and on. You live in a world that's full of that kind of thing, right? Um, We watched uh, on the news about what's going on in Venezuela this week. And see that through authoritarian authoritarianism, people are being crushed. You see people digging through uh, the garbage trying to find just a little bit of food and long, long lines of children hoping to have one meal for a day uh, because of the brutality of an oppressing leader. I was listening to the Catch and Kill podcast um, and it's talking about how people in power uh, use their position and benefits that they might uh, bestow on people to take advantage of women sexually. And then uh, when anyone has the courage to speak up, there are all sorts of levers of power and money that can be pulled to squash and quiet them. And so the stories are hopeless stories that what can be done? Why does God allow the oppressor to oppress and not do anything? Uh, If you're poor in our criminal justice system, if you're a minority in our criminal justice system, uh, you're just at the whim, apparently, of whoever is overseeing your case. And you realize that you want to put your trust in God, but it's hard to conclude that he's going to come through and actually vindicate people who need to be vindicated, protect people who need to be protected. And when he doesn't do what we ask him to do or think he ought to do, we're just... Killed with the question, why? Why doesn't he do what we need him to do? And you feel like in order to trust him, you have to know why he's doing what he's doing. If I don't know why, how can I trust him? But that's what we're called to do, is to trust him when we often don't know why he does what he does. And that's just hard. Um, One of the complaints I hear about Christianity is that uh, it's just... A set of easy answers for people who don't like to think. And if you find that version of Christianity, I wish you'd tell me because it sounds awesome to me. <laughs> I would love to have easy answers and not think. Um, because what we're faced with in the life of faith is very difficult. Trust in God when we don't understand why he does what he does. We're called to suspend judgment on God without suspending trust in God. Oh. Think about that. We're called to suspend judgment on God, that we don't try to sit uh, over him as a judge. Uh, At the same time, not suspending our trust in him, that we are called to trust him even though we don't understand the whys. But for most people, it doesn't work very easily that way. Uh, Elie Wiesel, in the the quote at the beginning of the bulletin, uh, played this out. His experience, he was... uh, A prisoner both in Auschwitz and Buchenwald uh, concentration camps under the Nazis. And the silence of God in those situations caused him not to suspend his judgment on God, but to give up on God. He says, never shall I forget that night, the first night in camp, which has turned my life into one long night. Never shall I forget those flames which consumed my faith forever. Never shall I forget... That nocturnal silence which deprived me for all eternity of the desire to live. Never shall I forget those moments which murdered my God and my soul and turned my dream to dust. Never shall I forget these things, even if I am condemned to live as long as God himself. Never. He's in a similar place to Habakkuk. A similar strain on his faith in watching the cruelty of human beings towards each other. And the difference being in God's mercy that Habakkuk is able uh, not to suspend trust in God even though he doesn't understand why God is or isn't doing what he does or doesn't do. He, He doesn't let what he doesn't know take away from him what he does know about God. And that's the Christian faith, right? Is that I trust you even though I don't understand you. Um, I assume that God is just and good and compassionate still. Um, I don't know why he doesn't act out of that in my circumstances right now. And what we're told to trust on is more like ultimate stuff than it is Uh, everyday circumstantial stuff. We know more about ultimate things about God than we do the day-to-day circumstances of our lives. It's not that we don't understand Him at all. It's that we don't understand what He's doing right now in our lives and circumstances of our lives. So big picture things we know. uh, A lot, we know that this world is broken and fallen. And so when we try to understand what's going on, we realize that this is a world that we've broken through human rebellion. We're under the curse of God because of that. And so a lot of things don't go well. Um, we know about Jesus' empathy when we think big picture and how he has suffered as we suffer under these same things. We know about his promise that eventually he will set the world back to rights. that a just judgment day will come, that God by no means leaves the guilty unpunished. He hears the cries of the oppressed and he will respond. Uh, and we know that this will happen at the return of Jesus. But when we look at our present circumstances, we don't know so much. We're more like you know, kids looking through a keyhole of a door. And trying to figure out what's going on in the room. You know, you can see a little bit, glimpses, but not really very much. And what you see is probably misleading because it's so limited in its context. And you easily draw the, the wrong conclusions. And so when we do this with God and try to understand Him through looking at our circumstances and what we can see right now, we tend to misrepresent Him and easily wind up doubting Him. Right? Easily doubt God. And we're told that the life of faith is us seeing through a glass darkly. What we see is opaque, and we're called to trust God in the midst of that opacity. Another favorite story uh, from Dorothy Sayers in her mystery novel, Strong Poison, where her protagonist, uh, Harriet Vane, who's kind of her in the stories, uh, she always is involved in solving crimes, But in this story, she herself is accused of murder. And uh, the case against her is bad. Her friend, Lord Peter Whimsey, who is her hero in these stories, comes to her aid in the midst of her trial. But he's told that the case against her is watertight. All of the known facts are against her, he's told. And he says, the known facts are not all the facts. And I know her. And so, on the basis of that, he begins to argue and plan for her defense. Uh, the known facts are not all the facts, but I know her. And so, he's able to trust her. This is what we do with Jesus. We don't know all the facts. Uh, but what we do know, we know him. And that causes us to trust him. We know his empathy. I think of the suffering that we go through in our lives. Jesus was a, an, oppre- a, a, an oppressed minority, born as a Jew. Uh, The legitimacy of his birth was questioned. Still, the legitimacy of his birth is questioned. Um, He was oppressed both by the religious and political authorities where he lived pretty uh, routinely throughout his adult life. Um, His reputation was dragged through the mud, through rumors and through slander, very commonly and still is. He was betrayed by his closest friends. He was falsely charged, uh, tried by a prejudiced jury and a cowardly judge, and then was tortured and judicially murdered. So what human beings experience as a result of the cruelty of other human beings, Jesus has experienced, as we have. And that's what we know of him. When we go to trust him, though we're perplexed, we know his empathy. We also know his promise that he will come back at the end of history and set the world to rights finally. And in the meantime promises that he will never forsake us no matter what we endure. And we cling to these promises. So what the Christian says, as our statement of faith is, um, I may not know why this is happening, but I know you. And you know why. I don't know why, but I know you. And you know why. Uh, Marty Kyes, who is... Uh, written really helpfully on this subject, may describe going to a friend's uh, brother's funeral. And a friend who had the brother murdered uh, stood up to speak at the funeral. She was a Christian, uh, but her brother had been murdered, leaving behind a young wife and young children, and um, very cruel and senseless crime. And she asked this question at the funeral. She said, uh, how can I look at what has happened to my brother and his family and still say that God is good? She says, I can't. But this isn't all that God has given me to look at. This isn't all that God has given me to look at. God has given us his son, Jesus Christ, to look at. Uh, We know No matter what's going on in our lives, it's true that he has died for us, uh, that he rose from the dead for us, and that he's coming again for us. And when we look at him, instead of our circumstances, we're able to suspend our judgment on God without suspending our trust in God. Now let's pray.